0: So, it took me a while to um, prepare this sermon for a handful of reasons. This week was a complete wash uh, for a variety of reasons. It was a hard week, talk about that in a minute. Um, in part because I was laid up in bed since Tuesday afternoon. So don't shake my hand, hug me, or kiss me after the service unless you want the plague. Um, I'm actually better. Sorry, I hugged all of you guys. (laughs) We'll be dead by Wednesday. Um, People as old as Coach Key will not be able to fight off what I had this week. I'm sorry, brother. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I know, my day is coming. Um, Anyway, uh, it was just, it was a week that threw me off kilter for a variety of reasons. Um, And so as I sat down yesterday and really, really looked at this passage with the help of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, Um, I was just swept off my feet and taken aback. And at first I was wrestling with the passage and then God opened my eyes and I saw things that I had never seen before. And, um, And so I just want to spend the first few moments kind of breaking down what's going on here, breaking down these verses so that we can sort of gain a bird's eye view as to what Paul's actually saying here. What's actually going on? So, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, Paul speaks of an already done deal, a unilaterally accomplished rescue, something that has already taken place. When he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's not saying, there is therefore now no condemnation if... He says, there is therefore now no condemnation therefore... In other words, it's done. It is a done deal. There is no condemnation for those whom God loves, sets his affection on, saves, rescues, sets free, and adopts. It's a unilaterally gracious, sovereign, divine act of rescue. It's a done deal. It applies to all of those that God has raised from death to life. And then he moves into verses five through eight, and he's describing two kinds of people. He's describing those who have been set free and those who are still trying to set themselves free. That's what he's describing here. Two kinds of people, those who have been unilaterally set free and those who are autonomously trying to set themselves free and What he's really getting at there, even though he doesn't say this explicitly, is that the root of sin is unbelief. I'm failing to believe that God in Christ rescues sinners, therefore I have to rescue myself. I have to save myself. I have to generate for myself all of the things that my heart longs for. I have to justify myself. I have to validate myself through all of my activities and all of my pursuits and all of my relationships and all of those things. So what he's saying there basically is the root of sin is unbelief. The fruit of sin is slavery because life becomes hard and burdensome when you fail to believe that it's already been done. So therefore, you have to now do it yourself. So he's describing in those verses 5 through 8, uh, those who have been set free and those who are still trying to set themselves free. And then in verses 9 through 17, he describes for his readers which ones they are. Okay, so he begins in verse 9 and he says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. It's a fact. Okay, he's saying, "You, you I've just described two kinds of people. I began by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paid in full. The law's been fulfilled. You've been pardoned forever. Things between you and God are forever fixed and you're in. You are an adopted son, and adopted daughter of God. You have been adopted by God because he's amazingly, outrageously gracious and merciful. Streams of mercy never ceasing. We sang at the beginning of the service. And so he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then he describes these two different sets of people, those who have been set free, those who are uh, still trying to set themselves free, and as a result are enslaved to their own efforts, their own doing, their own activity, and all of those things. And then he says in verse 9, let me tell you which group you belong to. Let me remind you, because it's so easy to forget... It's so easy to forget who you are. It's so easy to forget whose you are. Then let me remind you, and this is where he's really tapping into the universal problem that we all experience of unbelief. Because everything he's just said in verses one through four seems just too good to be true. What do you mean? And then wait, wait till he gets to the end of chapter eight, which I have the Enormous privilege of preaching next week, Easter Sunday. We set it up perfectly this way, so that I could preach my favorite verses, the most explosive verses in all the Bible, on Easter Sunday. Um, and uh, wait till we get to the end. There, he just says some mind-blowing things. But he begins chapter eight by just saying, "It's it's done. You're in. There's nothing you did to earn it." there's nothing you did to deserve it. This is a sovereign act of divine grace that has raised you from death to life and set you free. There's nothing you did to get it, and there's therefore nothing you can do to lose it. It's a done deal. So Paul taps into this idea that this is just so hard for us to believe. It really is, because we know ourselves, we know what we think, we know what we've done, we know what we've failed to do. We know that God is perfect and we are imperfect. God is holy and we are unholy. We know these things. We we know enough about God to know he's not like us. And we know enough about ourselves to be grateful that God saves people like us, but it's just so it's impossible to believe. It's impossible actually, to believe unless God grants belief. But so he says, let me just tell you who you are. Let me just remind you of your identity, who you are because of what Jesus has done. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, I think, that everywhere else you go in the world, every sector of society, the history of philosophy I mentioned um, a few weeks ago is... Basically, an attempt to understand and describe this fact. You are what you do. You are what you can accomplish. You have to forge your own identity. You have to justify your existence by the things you do and by who you can become. And Paul says, let me tell you some explosively good news. You are not what you do, thank God. You are what Jesus has done for you. That's your identity. You are locked in Christ. You are a slave of righteousness, which I said a couple of weeks ago is nothing more and nothing less than a free person, someone who is locked into God's cage of righteousness and can never, ever wiggle our way out, thank God. Because the cage of God's righteousness is our freedom. That is the place where God has put us and placed us, Um, and so he describes in verses 9 through 17 for his readers which ones they are, because let me tell you who you are in light of these two kinds of people I just described. They are the free ones. They are the ones who have been forever granted the perfection of Jesus on their behalf so that they now no longer have to fend for themselves. That's who they are. Um, So the whole passage is pretty straightforward, but people like me, and probably like you, if you read it carefully, we get hung up on verse 13. And the reason we get hung up on verse 13 is because it seems to put life and death back in our hands. You know, like God is an Indian giver. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Verse 13, let me tell you something. You blow it, you're out. You don't blow it, you're in. That's what it seems to say. That's why it's so important to read verses in context. Do not simply pull a verse out and build an entire theology around it. You have to read it in context because clearly Paul cannot be contradicting in verse 13 what he's just told us in verse 1. I mean, this is all part of an of a flow that he's developing because it says in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. I mean, what does it sound like he's saying there? It sounds to me like he's saying, um, you know, if you're good, you'll live. And if you're bad, you'll die. I mean, that's seems to be exactly what he's saying. You know, if, if you are, if you're good, you'll live. If you're bad, you'll die. Now, um, there is a sense in which we experience horizontal consequences for dumb things we do. Okay, you, you know that. You know, you, um, you drive drunk and you'll get your license taken away. You don't study and you'll get a bad grade. If you slander your boss, you'll lose your job. I mean, simple cause and effect. Horizontal consequences, you know, for dumb things that we do, foolish mistakes that we make. I was on Friday night last week, not like three days ago, uh, but Friday night uh, last week, I was in New York City and we were at a conference, a handful of us went up for the Mockingbird Conference. My friend David Zoll, who you know if you came to Liberate, um, has a conference each year in New York City. Uh, called Mockingbird and um, Zach and I were trying to hail a cab which took like 45 minutes because we don't know what the heck we're doing trying to hail. I'm like, is the light supposed to be on? Is it off? Which ones are available? I was totally, you know, I've been in New York City 10 trillion times. I still don't know how to hail a cab and I'm just not an obnoxious person. So I'm not going to stand out in the middle of the road like my friend Dwayne Barnhart who can hail a cab like nobody I've ever seen, by the way, okay? I've never heard a guy whistle louder, stand out, and lay in front of the... uh, It's unbelievable, okay? If you're going to New York City and you want to hail a cab fast, bring Dwayne Barnhart, all right? Um, Well, Zach and I are kind of sissies, you know? More Zach than me, but... um, (laughs) So I'm not going to, like, stand out. I mean, I'm sort of a chill South Florida guy. I'm not some obnoxious New Yorker, you know? (laughs) So I'm, you know, we're... Taking forever, I'm just sort of sitting on the like. <laughs> you know, um, cabbies are like swerving to hit me and driving by anyway. So, uh, in all seriousness, we're standing in front of our hotel trying to get a cab to go over to the conference about 5:30 on Friday night. Uh, when I get a text from a friend asking me if I knew anything that was going on at Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale? And I said, nope. I said, but I can find out. Uh, So I started texting people that I know, uh, my brother in particular, and um, felt a, uh, a weight on my shoulders like I hadn't felt in a long time when I got word back regarding what was taking place and going down over there ruined the rest of our weekend, couldn't stop thinking about it, couldn't stop praying about it. Uh, Those moments come and they are remarkably sobering and scary, causes, I don't care who you are, causes you to take an inventory of your life, causes you to think about the relationships that you have. It it just, it, it grants you appreciation for God's grace and mercy in some deep and profound ways. Um, and as the weekend progressed, and I stayed very much involved um, with my brother, particularly, who pray for him. He's my hero. Pray for Stefan. He is... Just pray for him. He's the chairman of the board over there, and... Uh, love him, Um, has had a heavy, heavy, heavy weight on his shoulders for the past week. Um, But it reminded me um, that horizontal consequences are real. And I texted my brother, Bob, Saturday morning, and I said, I'm begging you to remember this, Begging you to remember this. Horizontal consequences do not equal vertical condemnation. They do not equal. You will go through hell. But do not mistake the consequential hell you will go through as God disowning you. It's impossible. God owns you owns you. His grace has purchased you. There's nothing you did to get it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, two things to remember regarding this verse. Number one, um, that no vertical condemnation does not equal no horizontal consequences. And number two, horizontal consequences does not equal vertical condemnation. It's important to keep those two things separate because when you are in the throes of horizontal consequences, the only thing that will save your life is remembering that there is therefore now no condemnation. That while your love for others and others' love for you fails and falters, perhaps because of stupid things you've done, God's love never fails. God's love never falters. That His mercy is outrageous and that we can never, ever, ever out the coverage of God's forgiveness. You need to hear that. I need to hear that um, and be reminded of that. So you need to understand that... Um, Paul has already told us that we're slaves to righteousness, that we're locked in a cage of God's love and acceptance because of what Jesus has done for us. And then he also, as I mentioned, opens up Romans 8 and says, there's therefore now no condemnation. So he can't be putting life and death back in our hands in verse 13. Sometimes the best way to understand what a verse is saying is to first identify what it's not saying. And we know for sure what it's not saying because of what Paul has already said, okay? So he's not saying, you have died in Christ and have been raised with Christ over here, and then taking that gift away puts life and death back in our hands and, say, and says, it's up to you. It's not what's going on uh, in verse 13. Verse um, 13. The gospel of grace stands on one word. One word. Get this word, tattoo it on your forehead if you have to. I mean, the gospel of grace stands on one word, substitution. Substitution. If I could quote this hymn every single week, I would. And I basically do. In my place condemned, he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The gospel stands, it rests on one word, substitution. Jesus has come to live the life we could never live and therefore fulfill God's law and meet God's requirements. He died the death that we deserve to die and then takes all of that righteousness that He earned and gives it to us for free, clothes us in it. The glorious exchange the early church fathers talked about, that substitution that changes everything for you and me, that, that substitutionary work that enables us to take a step back and go, I am not what I do. I am what Jesus has done for me. Um, So when Paul talks here about the flesh and the spirit, he's not describing our standing before God. He's just said, he has just said in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, reminding his readers who you are. And then he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He can't be talking about our standing before God because he's already told us what that is. So what's going on here? um, He's simply describing in another way what he described in Romans 7. Which is that internal tension and temptation we face as a result of our being Simil Eustace et Picator. Simultaneously justified and sinner. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This remarkable, mind blowing phrase of identity that Martin Luther coined simultaneously justified and sinner. Uh, before God, identity is not both and. It's not I'm a sinner and righteous before God, vertically. It is either I am a sinner or righteous before God. So before the throne of God above, before God, uh, I am not either sinner or saint. I'm, I mean, I'm not sinner and saint. I'm sinner or saint. I'm not either justified. I'm not justified and sinner. I'm justified or sinner. But... Um, So it's not a description of our Christian identity. It's not a description of who we are before God. What it is, however, is a description of the both-and that characterizes the Christian life as we feel it lived. We're faced with choices every day. We're faced with circumstances every day, every single day. And uh, when we sin and disobey and all of those things that... Continue to perpetuate our slavery, we are in those moments undergoing an identity crisis, forgetting who we are and what we really want, having been deceived into believing that whatever's being offered over here will set me free. So he's describing this tension that he described in. Romans chapter 7, he's describing the internal warfare of temptation and tension that, that you know, the thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Everything he talked about in Romans 7, he's describing that again here. This is what this is what simil justus et peccator looks like, feels like, smells like, tastes like on the ground of everyday life. It's what he's describing here. Um, so, he's describing this um, experience, this on-the-ground lived experience that all of us have. But then he goes on in verses 15 through 17. Well, back up. We know that's what he's doing in those verses because he follows up those verses. I mean, he follows up verse 13 by saying uh, in verse 15 through 17, reminding them again who they are. I mean, look at what he says in verse um, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have, the, you have received the spirit of adoption. You didn't achieve it. You received it. Okay, the gospel is, a, is something received. Pardon is something received. It's not something achieved. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's who you are. You're adopted, you're in the family. So he's not putting life and death back in our hands in verse 13. He's making an identity statement in verses 15 through 17. He's saying, You're not what you do, you don't belong to yourself. You are what Jesus has done for you. You belong to him and are therefore free. He's saying, you who were guilty are now forgiven. You who are an enemy are now loved. You who were dead are now alive. You, were, you who were in slavery are now free. He's not putting life and death back in our hands. He's reminding us that we have died and been made alive. It's a big difference between those two things. Um, but because our experience continues to condemn us, causing us to question who we are. Paul says, the Spirit of God was given to you to tell you over and over and over and over again that you're in. You're mine. You know, there's so much bizarre controversy over the Holy Spirit. You know, I mean, it just sounds... Uh, so mystical and strange in our day to talk about the Holy Spirit. I remember when Jenna was small um, and I would teach her, taught all my kids, but taught her, I remember specifically when she was small, teaching her the catechism. And one of the questions is, um, you know, in how many persons is God? Okay, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, God the Holy Spirit. This was sort of old English, so it said Holy Ghost. Uh, and so I remember one time her answer to that question. I said, "How many persons?" The question was, "How many persons um, is God?" Okay, God is one, but three persons. You know, uh, maybe you don't. Should go to hell if you don't know that. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, so uh, she said, "God the Father, God the Son, and God the Ghost." That was her answer. It's like, yeah, it's, you're right. God the ghost kind of freaks me out, had nightmares that night. But to talk about, you know, kind of the, the Holy Spirit, it just sounds so strange, so weird. And so as a result, Christian people have come up with all sorts of ideas about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and all of those things. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit's job description is. We get it from the lips of Jesus and the Gospels, and we also get it right here from Paul. Jesus tells his disciples before he dies, there is one coming who will be able to minister to all people all the time because I'm, you know, I'm, I am in the flesh, Jesus says. I am physically contained to being in one place at one time as the God-man. But I'm going away And I'm going to send one who will come and be able to be with all of my people all of the time. The Holy Spirit. And he says about the Holy Spirit, this is what he's coming to do. He is coming to testify to me. That's his job description. What my theology professor in seminary, Doug Kelly, called the humility of God. The Holy Spirit is the humility of God, never, ever bringing attention to himself. That person of the Godhead that's always pointing away, shining a light on who Jesus is. That's why I get uncomfortable uh, when ministries or churches or, you know, theological positions make the Holy Spirit the center of attention. I say, the Holy Spirit doesn't even want to be the center of attention. Um. And therefore, Paul says here too, he's come to do one thing to preach one sermon inside you every single moment of every single day. The Holy Spirit's job description is to preach to the deepest regions of your unbelief three words it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. Your mind, your mind, your mind, your mind. The Holy Spirit's job is to internally remind us of who we are, who we belong to, so that we can experience and live into the unbelievable and radical freedom that Jesus purchased for us and secured for us. So the Spirit was given to to you to tell you over and over and over again that you're in. You can put it this way. The ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of you is to constantly remind you of what Jesus has done outside of you. It's what his job is. That's what Paul says here. So uh, let me go on a rant, all right? Which you you, you guys love for some sick reason. But I could not help but think about this as I was preparing yesterday. Um... I had lots of time sitting in bed for three or four days to listen to lots of preachers. Preach, you know? I mean, I just sort of, what else are you going to do? Read, pray. I wanted to listen to sermons, okay? Um, so anyway, I, I, did, I did all the above, downloaded music. That actually took up most of my time. But, um, so I was listening to lots of uh, different sermons, and I was struck by one thing. When I listen to some preachers preach, actually more than some, it seems pretty obvious to me that the biggest fear they have is that people think they're saved when they're really not. And this is how I know that. Because they're constantly giving checklists... This is not some myth that I just get up and talk about. Go listen for yourself. They're constantly giving checklists. They're constantly exhorting you to do things. Not because doing things is bad. Doing things is good. And ironically, when our hearts have been gripped by what's been done, we actually do more. And we do it instinctively and spontaneously and and joyously. Um... And Paul says that in, like I said, in Romans 7. Telling people what to do doesn't generate the desire to do it. Telling people what Jesus has done changes the heart, enlarges it, and makes people fall over themselves to love God and love one another. That's the distinction between law and gospel, okay? So anyway, so I'm listening and I'm going, it's so obvious to me. These people are badgering their audiences, And they all sounded angry and doubtful that anyone sitting in front of them was actually a Christian. And so they would preach their sermons in a way as to cause people sitting there to question whether or not they're saved. Now I know where they're getting this, okay? Matthew chapter 7. You know that those verses in Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23 where Jesus says uh, there will be many on that last day who cry out to me, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name and we did that in your name and I will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. And so there is this legitimate concern, legitimate concern that there are people who uh, listen think that they belong to God, when in fact they don't. Two things I want to say about that, three things, maybe five, we'll see, all right? Um, number one, that's impossible. It's not what Matthew 7 is saying, which I'll share in a second, but what I know what Paul's saying here is it's impossible. If you're saved, you know it, and if you're not, you know it, you don't care. So, I mean, this, what he's saying here is the Spirit testifies with your spirit that you're mine. So, I want to say to these guys, relax, man. I mean, just relax. Stop beating people to a pulp by causing them to doubt. Listen, <laughs> um, if Jesus doesn't question my salvation, how dare you cause me to question my salvation? Okay? I mean, like, literally. And what's... What, bothers me about this is that I I love people, and they're they're bruised and battered and broken down by guys who think they're doing them a favor by saying, maybe you're in, maybe you're not. And what's going on in those moments is that the, the spokesperson of God is actually working against the Spirit of God who's telling that person, you're in, you're in, you're in. There's two sermons going on at the same time. You've got some Joe Schmo behind the pulpit, okay, going, maybe you're not. And you've got the spirit inside saying, don't listen to that. You are. Okay. So that's one thing to say. Uh, If you go back to Matthew chapter 7 and look at what's actually going on there, notice why these people thought that they were in. Because of what they did. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, what's the problem there? Why did he never know them? Look at their resume. I did this in your name. I did that in your name. I did this, that, and the other. Where were they anchoring their hope? In their activity, in what they accomplished, in what they were doing, in their piety, okay? In their their moral behavior, in their service to others, which is the antithesis of the gospel, which is, you're a train wreck, Jesus saves. Okay, not look at what I've done. Don't I deserve this entrance into your kingdom? Um, and so I, I, I get the concern in a sense, I think it comes from a misreading of Matthew chapter 7, a deep insensitivity to people, uh, failure to believe that the Spirit of God is the one who testifies with our spirit that we're in. If Jesus doesn't question my rescue, you shouldn't cause me to question my rescue. Okay, Um, so this is uh, Donald Bloch, who was a theologian, wrote this in a book that I read a long time ago. Interesting, just from a historical standpoint, kind of puts some perspective on this. Among modern Christians, it is not the justification of the ungodly, which formed the basic motif during the time of the Reformation. It's not the justification of the ungodly, but the sanctification of the righteous that is given the most attention. It's a shift there from God to us, from external to internal, from what's been done to what we do. Okay, that's a shift, a major, major shift. That was not the emphasis of the Protestant Reformation, which here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. I mean, that was not the emphasis on the, during the time of the Reformation, which changed the world forever, was the justification of the ungodly, which is, by the way, I mean, engraved in that pulpit. Okay, Romans 1, 17. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It is God who makes righteous. We don't make ourselves righteous. The whole gospel is outside of us. It's not inside of us. Um, And so, um, he says, it's not the Modern Christians, not the justification of the ungodly, but the sanctification of the righteous that is given the most attention. And with this shift came a renewed focus on the internal life of the individual. So the subjective question, how am I doing, became a more dominant feature than the objective question, what did Jesus do? Okay? What would Jesus do, bracelets? Where does that put the focus on? You. You. Someone come up with a different kind of bracelet. It says, um, "WD." What? What did Jesus. WDJD." OK, Market those.) Um, Because You you see it. I mean, you see it all over the place. And you can can see it when you uh, listen to sermons. I mean, generations of Christians were taught that Christianity was primarily a lifestyle, that the essence of our faith centered on how to live. The essence of our faith centered on how to live. If that's the essence of our faith, how to live, the internal life of the individual, where's the hope? Um, I mean, you won't find hope inside. Our only hope comes from outside. So our ongoing performance for Jesus rather than Jesus' finished performance for us became the focus of sermons and books and conferences. This, is all, this all happened with this historical shift that took place. What I need to do and who I need to become became the end game. Now, to be sure, the Bible has plenty to say about our becoming like Jesus, but the storyline of the Bible is that Jesus became like us. That's the storyline of the Bible. I mean, our transformation is a secondary theme of the Bible. The primary theme of the Bible is incarnation, substitution. Our becoming like Jesus is the fruit, the given fruit of Jesus having become like us. Um, So the modern church has sadly reversed the order. The focus of the Christian faith has become the life of the Christian. And this shift in focus from the external to the internal has enslaving consequences that these verses set us free from completely. I mean, when you're despairing, when you're feeling the guilt and the shame, the desperation and the despair, when you are experiencing a dark night of the soul, when things seem to be falling through the cracks and you're feeling alone and abandoned, and all of those things that plague and mark human existence for all of us, even those of us who have been surrounded by loving people our entire lives, Even though we've been surrounded by remarkable, loving people. I've been surrounded by loving people my whole life. My whole life. But all those loving people were broken and fallible. And so that their, their loving presence didn't eliminate aloneness, sense of abandonment, fear, despair, dejection, shame, guilt, all of those things. When you're experiencing those things... Turning to the internal quality of your faith will bring you no hope at all. And all too often, our preaching and our counseling and our relating to one another is the equivalent of giving a drowning man swimming lessons. Paddle harder. Swim faster. Listen, the person who is drowning doesn't need instructions on how to swim. They need to be pulled out of the water from someone outside, standing on the beach. It um, doesn't matter how hard you paddle, if you're drowning, disoriented, turning to the internal quality of your faith will lead you to despair. Despair. It won't bring hope. It won't bring reorientation and rescue. We assume that people possess the internal power to get things right, so we turn them into themselves. But as you know, every internal answer will collapse underneath you. Turning to the object of your faith, namely Christ, Jesus, and his finished work for you, his finished work on your behalf, is the only place to find peace and hope. It's the only place that you can find peace and hope hearing again and again that strange, foreign, yet liberatingly beautiful voice that comes from the outside announcing from an old, rugged cross, it is finished. It's finished. Tell me again. It's finished. Again. It's finished. What? What has happened as a result of this shift is the three words that have come to define Christianity are just do it rather than it is finished. And when you experience weeks like I experienced this week, like family and friends of mine have experienced this week, what do we need? What do you need? I mean, you need renewed emphasis on more diligent accountability groups. That's going to help. The problem is not outside of you. <laughs> the problem's inside. The only solution's on the outside. Rearranging the deck chairs doesn't solve the, the heart of the human problem, which is the problem of the human heart. It doesn't solve that. And what's the only thing that can transform a heart? It is finished spoken with unspeakable, infallible, eternal love that comes from outside of us that says over and over and over again, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When your heart is melted, melted by that, something happens, you know? Something happens Inside of you, when you are loved in your weakness, when you are granted forgiveness and pardon in the moment in which you least deserve it. I mean, you're reading the blogs this week, you know, I mean, every Tom, Dick, and Harry is weighing in about what to do, you know, what to do when a pastor falls like this or someone in your life, you know. I mean, it's unbelievable to me. All the answers are outside. They're all law. (laughs) Law. I'm like, read Romans 7. I'm not saying those things are unimportant. I'm not saying checks and balances, and I'm not saying that. Friendships and all of those things, they all help, but that's not the answer to the problem. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's an internal problem with an external solution. So the answer to a wandering heart is not double down on law. It's give me, it is finished. Over and over and over and over again, turning to the external object of your faith. Jesus and his work for you is the only place to find peace and hope. The, the gospel, I'll just conclude with this. The gospel always directs you to something, someone outside of you instead of to something inside of you for the assurance that you crave in seasons of doubt and guilt and shame, always. The gospel doesn't point to you. It points to one outside you who came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. So when we sing, I was singing this literally as I was downloading electronic music yesterday I was singing this to myself when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Where do I look? Upward, I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do in those moments? Where do I go? Upward, I look and see him there. Who put an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's good news. That's what sinners need to hear. (laughs) That's what they need to hear. They need to hear that there is one whose love never fails and falters, one whose love your badness could never earn and could never possibly deserve. The gospel is the good news announcing that Jesus's infallible devotion to us happens in spite of our lack of devotion to him. The gospel is not a command to hang on to Jesus It's a promise that no matter how weak your faith may be, God is always holding on to you. That's the good news. You know, I don't care how many times someone says the word gospel, you know you've heard it when it lightens and relieves and causes you to exhale rather than bite your nails. That's when you know. You can say the word gospel 10,000 times in a sermon, and if people walk out thinking more about what they need to do than what Jesus has done, you you haven't spoken good news over those people. And I want the last words every Sunday that I speak over God's people to be the last words that God speaks over his people, which is simply, it is finished and since it's so difficult to believe i've given you i've given you a part of me my spirit whose whole job is to seep down deep into your ongoing regions of unbelief and preach one sermon it is finished it is finished it is finished